together to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. I encourage you to follow along this evening there in your worship guide as we look at these 29 verses together, continuing in our study of the book of 1 Samuel and looking together here at chapter 23. For sake of time, I'm going to approach uh, the delivery a little differently tonight. Instead of reading all 29 verses here at the outset of the message, I want us to jump right into it together, and we'll look at the 29 verses as we go along. And so 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 29. I believe it is an accurate statement to say that the Bible is a book about suffering. The Bible is a book about suffering. From the beginning pages of Genesis to the final chapter of Revelation, suffering is never too far away from any page in God's Word. And in many cases, the subject of suffering fills the page entirely. The Christian Life cannot be separated from suffering. Even Christ himself experienced and embraced suffering. Have you ever asked God the question, why, in the midst of adversity? As you journey through a season of suffering, have you ever lifted your head and Hands toward heaven with that question of why this, why now, why here? Well, you'll not be alone in that. I think sometimes we are made to feel guilty when we cry out why. But may we never even forget that even Christ himself, at the climactic point of suffering in his own earthly life. Matthew 27, 47, hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Christ suffered. Christ asked the question, why? And if Christ himself had to suffer, then we we know two things are true about suffering. I jotted these down in my notes. Number one, we know that if Christ had to suffer, then suffering is sometimes linked to holiness. Suffering is sometimes linked to holiness. God did not suffer because he was an unholy man. No, he was holy. He was perfect. He is the essence of good. Bad things did not happen to Jesus because he did bad things. No, bad things happened to Jesus even when he was good. I think sometimes when we go through seasons of adversity, trial, and suffering, one of the first things that comes to our minds is, what what did I do wrong? Now, that's not a bad question to ask. Because there are times in which suffering comes into our lives that it is a direct result of our unholiness and our badness. 
and our evil. But that's not always the case. Suffering, because Christ himself suffered, is often linked to holiness. It is the means by which in our lives Christ makes us more like him. We have to suffer because our Christ suffered. So if Christ suffered, then we have to acknowledge that suffering is linked to holiness. The second thing I wrote down is that if Christ had to suffer, then we will experience suffering too. And if you remember in last week's study of 1 Samuel, that was the closing essence of chapter 22 when David, the anointed one, the the Christ, if you will, looked to Abiathar and said, if they seek after me, they seek after you. It's a reminder to all of us that as we follow Christ, let it not be fault in our minds that we can somehow escape seasons of suffering, that they will not touch us, that we will not experience them. No, if Christ in his perfection experienced suffering, then we will experience suffering too. Well, for the last several chapters here in 1 Samuel, David, who we have noted on in several occasions is a figure of Christ or a type of Christ, is showing us that even God's anointed experience suffering. Remember, David, David is on the run, and Saul is determined to do whatever he must to kill him. So to say that David is experiencing a season of suffering and adversity is an, is an understatement. He is suffering. He's running for his life. But in chapter 23, David is going to discover in the midst of his suffering a rock Our passage calls it a rock of escape. For sake of clarity, we've identified it here as the rock of deliverance. The rock of deliverance. So let's continue to see this evening how David responds in this season of suffering. So let's look together at God's Word. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first point in our outline, the first header over the first 14 verses, which is simply this, David sought the Lord. How did David respond in his suffering? Well, he sought the Lord. David sought the Lord. Look at it there, chapter 23, verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. So so this appears here to be happening, the idea that the Philistines are attacking this city named Keilah. It appears to be happening while Saul is slaughtering the priests and their families in the town of Nob. You're you're there in chapter 23. Look look back to chapter 22. We, We noted this last Wednesday night, but let's be reminded of it in verse 18 and 19. David, excuse me, rather, Saul is reprimanding Ahimelech for what he perceived as disloyalty to the king. And notice what he says there in verse 18. The king said to Doeg, this is his hitman, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod, 85 priests. Also, Nob, that town, the city, 
the city of the priest, he, he struck them with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children, and nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck them with the edge of the sword. So while this is going on in the city of Nob, Saul slaughtering the priests and their families, taking out an entire town, the Philistines, the, the real enemy of Saul in Israel, are attacking this town called Keilah. Now, history assumes that Keilah was an Israelite town at the time of 1 Samuel chapter 23. It was located on the western border of Judah, just south of Adullam. And notice what David does upon hearing this news, verse 2. Therefore, David inquired or sought the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. It's interesting here, Saul is so obsessed with all these conspiracy stories and taking out David that he was neglecting his responsibilities as king. And one of his main responsibilities as king was to protect the people to fight against the Philistines. However, it's not Saul showing interest in protecting the people. It's, it's David here, the one who is running for his life stops in the midst of his own adversity, in the midst of his own suffering, when he is a target to be killed and taken. He stops and shows prayerful concern about saving the people. Now we're going to see this again when we come to the end of the chapter here in a moment, but let it be said that when you and I are focused on the wrong things, our utmost responsibilities and priorities will collapse all around us. That's what's happening to Saul. David should not be his enemy. David is his faithful servant. David is the one that God has chosen to take the throne. Now that, in Saul's mind, made David his enemy, but David was not to be the enemy. David's family. David's an Israelite. David is God's chosen but instead of partnering with David as the Lord directed, he turns his target to David at the sake of missing his priorities as king. The land is being infiltrated by the Philistines. So that's why we see David in verse 2 coming to the Lord in prayer, seeking his face and saying, look, I know, and this is implied here, I know my own life is in trouble, but, but Lord, I, I cannot neglect the fact that our people are being attacked by the Philistines. What would you like for me to do? You have to love this about David's character because he wasn't impulsive or reactionary. He simply sought the Lord's will. He wanted God's direction in these decisions. And it's a little bit of a change from what we've seen over the last few chapters from David when he is the one who is scheming for his own life. But now he's actually seeking the Lord because he's learned in the cave of suffering what it means to trust God and that as God's anointed, God would indeed protect him. So now he's in back 
right communion with the Lord. And he goes to the Lord. He seeks God's face. God, what would you have me to do? It's a tremendous reminder to us that in seasons of difficulty, we are to always, always, always seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. God, what would you have me to do? You know, that's the first question that the Apostle Paul asked of God when he came to put his faith in Christ. Acts chapter number 9 and verse 6, Paul looks up to heaven and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The evidence of his faith was a desire to do the will of God. And in order to do the will of God, he sought the Lord. And that is exactly what David is doing. God, what do you want me to do about Keilah? Do you want me to handle the Philistines? Would you like for me to take my 400 men and go down there and do this since it's obvious that Saul has no interest in doing so? Of course, God told him what to do. We see it there at the end of verse 2. The Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But look at verse 3. David's men said to him, look, (laughs) we're afraid here in Judah. Let's not even talk about Keilah for a moment. We're in Judah and we're scared out of our minds. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So then David inquired of the Lord once again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. David's men are fearful. They're fearful where they're at in Judah, hiding out from Saul. And they're fearful to move forward and to take on the Philistines. It's interesting. David doesn't try to guilt them into going in his own, in his own fleshly means. He, he notices that his men are afraid where they are, and how much more afraid would they be if they tried to go and fight the Philistines? So, so David did what a, what a good leader ought to do. He comes back to the Lord. He sought the Lord again. God, my, my men are, are afraid. Are you sure this is what you want me to do? I mean, if they're not with me, is this, is this, is this your will? I, I want to do whatever you want me to do, God. I think it's interesting here, and this is how the Lord spoke to me about it, is that his men were afraid, but David knew what ultimately mattered was the Lord's will. This is why we see him seeking the Lord again. He knew his men were afraid, but he also knew what ultimately mattered more than their fear was the will of the Lord, what God wanted him to do. Sometimes in seasons of suffering, trial, and adversity, we're we're placed in situations where fear is evident. It's overwhelming. I remember when we were first approached about the possibility of adoption. And even though it was a last-minute decision for us in terms of getting the phone call on the day that Jaden was born, we had been approached about it months in advance, but had yet to come to a conclusion of peace in our family about whether or not the Lord wanted us to do this. And any time we're faced with these type of decisions, I remember meeting with our, 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 our leadership team one Sunday morning and just said, hey, I want you to pray with me about this. I'm not sure what God wants me to do. 
Steve so kindly reminded me of a sermon that I had preached years ago about uh, seven things to think about whenever you're going to make uh, decisions. I wish people wouldn't remind me about what I preach. You know, it makes it much more challenging to me. But he kindly did, and we started going through the process of, does the Lord want us to do this? Does the Lord want us to do this? In the months leading up to Jaden's adoption, we, we prayed and we prayed. We, we received various counsel. And honestly, the counsel was all over the place. There were those who said, you got to do this. There were those who said, Pastor, you, you've had a rough year. We're concerned if you do this. This group said, you got to do this. This pastor friend said, maybe you ought to think twice about it. We were just getting all this counsel, but it was not giving us any peace. I can't remember if it was my father or her father, but one day we were, we were Zooming or FaceTiming one of our fathers, torn about what God would lead us to do. And one of them looked at Kathleen and said, you got to tune everybody out for just a moment. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what God wants your family to do. I remember that night, Kathleen going to bed. I began to pray again, seeking the Lord's face. God, show me through your word. Any major decision in our life, I always try to ask God to give me a verse of scripture to support what he wants me to do. I try to read a proverb every day and corresponding to the date on the calendar. Proverbs chapter 3 was today in relation to November the 3rd. That particular day in June, it was the 22nd, and so I opened up my Bible to Proverbs 22, and I get to verse 6, train up a child in the way it should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from him. Then I get a few verses later, and it talks about uh, the, the glory of fathers are their children. And then I get a, a few verses down. It seems like God was speaking to me about this. I had yet to come to grips with it, but the Lord was showing me. That regardless of my own fears or the fears of others, that what ultimately mattered was what God wanted me to do. And maybe you're in that place tonight. The people around you, or this decision you have in front of you, are causing you to be fearful. And perhaps their counsel needs to be taken. But whether you go or whether you stay, whether you move forward or whether you take a step back, whether you say yes or whether you say no, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what ultimately matters is what does God want you to do? And that's why David is seeking the Lord. He's seeking the Lord because in the seasons of his suffering, he needs to know God's direction for his life. Look at it there in verse 5. God told him what to do, and David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. This is what we've been learning in Hebrews, isn't it? God gives a command. I want you to go to Keilah and save the people. David acts in faith and obedience. He goes and fights off the Philistines. And what does God do? God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. All they needed was faith over fear. They just needed to trust the Lord. They needed to obey and go and fight against the Philistines, knowing that God was going to give them the power to overcome it. 
Now it happened, verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand, and Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. Seems to be that he's wrapped up his killing spree in Nob. He's just received a message about where David is. And notice Saul's response here. It's very sad, actually. Because he says here, after hearing that David had gone to Keilah, so Saul said, God has delivered David into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Did you notice that in verse 7? Saul said God had delivered David unto him. It's amazing how quick we are to suggest at times in our lives that the Lord desires to bless our disobedience. To bless our sin. Let's not forget who Saul had become. He had become a murderous tyrant. And now he claims that God is working for his good. But that's what sin does. Sin distorts our thinking. How many times, even in my own ministry as a pastor, have I heard people say, well, God wants me to do this. And they they say that in order to justify their wrongdoing or their sinful behavior. God wants me to do this. God wants me to be happy. God wants to bless me in this way, even though it might be wrong in doing so. Listen to me, friend. Saul isn't seeking God's face. He's abusing God's name. He is praising God and claiming that God is working on his behalf. But it's just not true at all. I think we need to be reminded from time to time when we are faced with these temptations to justify our disobedience by thinking wrongly that God has somehow provided this for us to to simply remember if it goes against the word of God, then it's against the will of God. No matter what it is, no matter how much we want to justify it, no matter how much we think we are blessed in doing it, if it goes against God's word, then it is against God's will. Verse 9, when David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. I don't want to spend too much time here, but just let me give you a quick little reminder about an ephod. An ephod was that apron-like garment that the priest would wear on the outside of their other clothing. It was an elaborate piece of clothing to the priestly garments. and Inside of it, it would actually hold what was the urim and the thummim which were associated with receiving direction from God. I don't, again, have time to go into all the nuances about it, but the point here of David asking for it is that he is once again seeking the Lord. He wants to know the Lord's will. He wants to know God's direction in this season of adversity. And that is the purpose of asking Abiathar to bring the ephod to him. And we see that next. Look at verse 10. As he brings the ephod, David says, or David prays, O Lord God of Israel, 
Your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Oh, Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord chooses, for whatever reason, to only answer one of the questions at first. He says, yes, David, he will come down. Then, verse 12, David said, well... Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord says, yes, David, they will deliver you. Now think about this. These are the people he just saved. These are the people he went and delivered, and now they are about to give him up. It would appear that their fear of Saul's rage was greater than any gratitude that they may have had for David's courage to deliver them. Perhaps word had gotten back to Keilah about Nob and they didn't want to become Saul's next victim. So as David is seeking God, God is clear. Saul is on his way and you'll not find safety with Keilah. They will, for fear, for fear, deliver you to Saul. So verse 13 says that David and his men, which is interesting here, is now about 600. His army's grown a little bit. Remember chapter 22 in the cave of Adullam? 400. He's added about 200. So, so maybe not everyone in Keilah was afraid. Maybe, maybe it was in Keilah after delivering them that he, he got a couple hundred more to join him in his exploits. David and his men, about 600, they arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. I love that phrase. It's, it's like they, they just got up and got out of there. They, they didn't know really where they were going. Saul's on the way. Let's get up and go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness, hiding places, and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. So Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him, that is David, into Saul's hand. Think about that phrase for a moment. Saul every day sought David. Every day. He's supposed to be protecting Israel. He's supposed to be keeping the Philistines away. But every day, every day, this, this hatred, this bitterness, this, this anger has grown to the point that not a day goes by. He is not festering, scheming, planning to take David out. But while Saul is seeking David, David again seeking God. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? David would write about this in Psalm 34. He said, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. By the way, what Saul claimed to be true, God takes the time here in the verse to emphatically deny Did you notice that in the last phrase of verse 14? Saul had told the people of Ziph, God has delivered him into my hand. 
God to the writer here, the Holy Spirit emphasizes in verse 14, God did not deliver him into his hand. Church in suffering, learn from David, seek the Lord. What do you want me to do? David sought the Lord. Number two, Jonathan strengthened David. Jonathan strengthened David. Look at verse 15. So David saw that Saul had come to seek his life. And so David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. I think the language here is important. David saw that this, he perceived that this was, this was never going to end. He saw it, that, that, that Saul was coming after him. It seems to suggest that David has, has hit, a, hit a low point, if you will. Perhaps the, the, the pressure of every day, every day, Saul seeking after him, him hiding. Saul coming, him running. Saul coming, him hiding. The, the emotional turmoil of all of this suffering and adversity, it, it seems to have intensified to a level that is, that is just wearing on him, to be honest. After all, Saul had enlisted in a nationwide manhunt for David, and David is seeing this right before his very eyes. Everything seems to to have David at his lowest moment. He, He appears to be depressed, perhaps asking that question that you and I often ask, will there ever be an end to all of this? Is my suffering going to ever conclude? Is my adversity or trial ever going to wrap up? How much longer am I going to have to deal with it? You know, when we experience intense seasons of suffering, we all come to this point on the journey that David is on when we wonder if it's all going to get better. And I don't know about you tonight, but I know it's true in my own life that it's at these lowest points that we need to remind ourselves and commit once again, to never giving up, to, to not lose heart, no matter what we perceive is coming against us. Because God will indeed give us exactly what we need, when we need it, where we need it. Just the moment we begin to think, is this ever going to be over? That's what brings us to verse 16. Look at it. Then Jonathan. We haven't seen him in a while, have we? Well, here he is doing what Jonathan, David's best friend, does best. At David's lowest points, his best friend seemed to always be there to strengthen his faith. Have you noticed that? I mean, the last time we saw them together was back in chapter 20, and that's exactly what Jonathan was doing. He was was strengthening his friend David in a season of discouragement. And now we see it again. Verse 16, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. I I notice on a very practical level two, two things here that Jonathan did to strengthen David, and perhaps you have a friend in your life today, a a David who is going through a season of of, of discouragement and suffering, and what is it that God would have me to do to to build them up, to strengthen their faith and and encourage their 
uh, hearts in the Lord. Well, just on a very practical basis, notice what Jonathan did. Number one, Jonathan strengthened David by his simple presence. By his presence. Notice what he says in verse 16. He went into the forest, in the wilderness of Ziph, to his friend and provided him encouragement. That is, Jonathan found out where David was and he went to David in order to help him. A friend who is worth more than money can buy is a friend who is willing to go to distance with you. With you. And here we see that covenant that existed between Jonathan and David. Wherever Jonathan was, he dropped everything and he went deep into the woods deep in the wilderness. He did whatever he could, however long it took him to find David because he did not want him to lose heart. He didn't want him to quit. Perhaps there's someone in your life that needs encouragement. Sometimes the best type of encouragement is just simply being there. Going to where they are, they're suffering and walking with them through it. Jonathan strengthened David by a simple presence. And then I wrote down, secondly, very practical, Jonathan strengthened David by a word of encouragement. By a word of encouragement. So when he got deep into the woods where Saul was, verse 17, he said unto him, Do not fear. Do not fear. For the hand of my Saul, or hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. Don't fear, David. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking that perhaps maybe this is a cheap and empty form of comfort considering David's circumstance. Like the guy's literally running for his life. He's, he's a step away from death. And, and the only thing Jonathan seems to say that we find here in the pages of Scripture is, hey, don't worry about it. Don't, don't fear. Don't, don't be afraid. But honestly, that couldn't be further from the truth in terms of being empty and comfortless. Because notice That David's, or rather Jonathan's word of encouragement, it was tied directly to God's word of promise. I'm going to say that again because this is important for all of our encouragement to to, to others. Jonathan's word of encouragement was tied directly to God's word of promise. Look at what he said. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. You will be king, David. Just As God promised. He wasn't just randomly, without giving any thought, walking up to his best friend and saying, ah, don't worry about it. Why are you so afraid? No, it wasn't empty. It wasn't cheap. No, 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 he realized that in seasons of suffering and depression, we, all of us, you, me, we need to be reminded over and over again about what God has said regardless of how we feel and what did God say about David he said David you are my anointed you are my chosen king I will protect you you will be the one on the throne of Israel in fact notice the next line there in verse 17 Jonathan goes a step further and he says listen my father will not find you you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you now, he's not claiming privilege, that is, Jonathan. He's not saying, I'm going to be next to you in the, in the sense of, of we're, going to, we're going to do this thing together. No, no, he's acknowledging his role as being second to David. Look, my father's not going to find you. 
And even though I'm the heir to the throne, that's not what God has chosen. God has chosen you to have the throne. And so I'm going to find my rightful place, my rightful role, and that's standing next to you and making sure you have everything you need to fulfill God's plan and purpose for your life. And look at the last phrase. Even, Jonathan says, my father Saul knows that. (laughs) David. He knows he's not going to catch you. He knows I'm not going to take the throne. He knows that God has meant it for you. So I know you're down. I know it seems like you're never going to get out of the woods, literally. But don't give up, David. Trust God's promise. Trust the facts, David. And the facts are, regardless of how you feel, you are God's anointed. He came to him and encouraged him. Not to lose heart. You know, Paul encouraged us on the same line, 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Are you you discouraged, depressed, down, think you're never going to get out of the woods? Hey, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. This is temporary. God will fulfill his purposes. God will keep his promises. We are safe. We are safe with God's anointed. I notice in verse 18, the two of them made a covenant again before the Lord. David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house. Now, if that was a picture of outdoorsmen, then that would would read perfectly because I don't ever stay in the woods. I always go back to my own house. But in this case, it has nothing to do with hunting, all right, or camping. It has everything to do with encouragement. They moved on. I wrote down here in my notes, what David heard from Jonathan overcame what David saw from Saul. You see, there are people in this room tonight who are seeing rivers that are uncrossable. They're seeing mountains they cannot, as the song goes, get through. But a word of encouragement tied to the promise of God can take a person to where what they hear from God is greater than what they see in front of them. Now, a little side note, and we'll wrap this up. Unbeknown to Jonathan and David, this will be the last time they'll ever see each other on earth. The last time. And the memory David would later have is that their last time together was a time when Jonathan greatly encouraged and strengthened him. I'm sure those were happy thoughts for David. And I know in my own life, it's just a reminder that none of us know, really, when our interactions with someone else will be our final interactions. None of us know really, even in our own relationships, when my last sermon will be my last sermon. When our communication or conversations will be our last. That's why all interactions truly matter. All of them. Because we never know, as is the case with Jonathan and David, when our last words to someone else may be said.
And I'll be honest with you. I have great regrets when I've discouraged someone. And I've asked the Lord, even in the last 18 months, God, if there's somebody I need to call and apologize, I want to do that. And I've been on the phone with quite a few people over the last two years apologizing that I was a discouragement to them. Because no matter what's said or the context with which it is in, those who who truly desire to honor the Lord will will look back and regret words of discouragement. But I want to tell you something. I've never regretted a word of encouragement. I've never regretted when I've tried and attempted my best to build someone up in the strength of God. It's a side note. And maybe nothing that you'll fall asleep thinking about tonight. But may I just throw it out there? That if there are any final words that you've said in recent days that would just be a sting of regret, perhaps a phone call, a text message, a cup of coffee to encourage someone before it's your last. Jonathan encouraged David. And then finally, number three, the Lord delivered David. The Lord delivered David. Look at verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods and in the hill of Akilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And, And Saul said, here it is again, verse 21, Blessed are you of the Lord. For you have had compassion on me. Remember how we said earlier that sin distorts our thinking? Well, here we are. Now Saul is viewing himself as the victim. Thank you for having compassion on me. This is how bad his perspective of things have become. He doesn't see himself as the villain. He sees himself as the victim. And as he receives this intel, we might would even label it the chase is on. The chase is on. Look at verse 22. He says to these Ziphites, go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. Verse 23, see therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So the Ziphites arose and they went to Ziph before Saul, before Saul would get there. And David and his men were now in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, Saul went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. This chase is going on. David is here, but he moves on. Saul goes there. David moves. Saul moves. David moves. Saul moves. It's chased. And the way the, 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 the writer is unveiling this for us, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's closing in on David. It's closing in on him. To the point in verse 26, Saul is on one side of the mountain, and David and his men are on the other side of the mountain. This is the closest that Saul has come to David. So David made haste to get away from Saul because Saul and his men were now 
encircling David and his men. They see them. They have them in their possession. His men are ready to take them. But, verse 27, look at it. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry Saul and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Now we notice this with the town of Keilah. That when you and I are focused on the wrong things, our true priorities will be challenged. Saul is out trying to kill David, his faithful servant, while Israel's true enemy, the Philistines, are invading his land. I don't have time to park here tonight, but it is a practical principle that all of us need to understand that when we are out chasing the wrong things, when we are focused on the wrong enemies, that is when the devil loves to come in and tear our true responsibilities apart. And here it's happening again. He's never been this close to David before. It seems like it is all over. And now, all of a sudden, in a location we do not know, The Philistines seem to be a challenge that Saul can no longer ignore. So verse 28, therefore Saul returned from pursuing David. It kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? That he would actually do this, but he does. And he goes to take care of the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Whatever threat the Philistines had become that day, it was certainly one that Saul could no longer ignore. He was so close, so close to David, but the Lord did what? The Lord delivered him. And that rock mentioned in verse 28, in the wilderness of Moan, it became a well-known monument to God's deliverance of his anointed. Perhaps children later would come as they were having a family reunion in the wilderness of Moan. And somebody was pulling on the garments of grandpa and saying, Papa, what's what's that rock all about? Why do we call that the rock of escape, the, the rock of deliverance? And Papa puts his grandchildren around him and says, oh, let me tell you about the time. God delivered our King David. Saul was right on his heels. And then God miraculously delivered him here at this rock. God became David's rock of escape. Saul goes, verse 29, last verse of the chapter. David leaves the wilderness of Moan and goes to live in the strongholds or the caves, the hiding places of En Gedi. We've seen a psalm over the last several chapters corresponding with each, with each episode that we're studying. I want to show you this one as we close. Psalm 54, would you turn there quickly? It's not on the screens. Psalm 54. It's the psalm that David penned after this exact episode. I want us to turn there together and read it. Psalm 54, it's only a few verses, seven verses. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, David is hiding with us. 
Here's what David writes, verse 1, Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. He's seeking the Lord. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Strangers have risen up against me. Oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. But behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you, O Lord. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me. He has become my rock of deliverance. He has brought me to the rock of escape. He has delivered me out of all my trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. He sought the Lord. He was encouraged by his friend. And God delivered him. You know, none of us have the strength to get through the sufferings that we face. I'm very careful what I say to people who are hurting. I cannot tell you, you can do this. Because the truth is, you cannot do this. And neither can I. That is why when we experience suffering, as David does here, we must seek the Lord. We must never lose heart. And church, we must trust that the Lord is going to keep us safe. He will be our rock of deliverance.